Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 10 of Caro Pop. I've known and loved the music of our next guest for more than 30 years. Yikes. We also wrote a songwriting book together, and he's a friend, so I'm very happy to introduce the great Steve Dawson. I first got to know Steve and his wife, Diane Christensen, when I started covering the Chicago music scene for the Chicago Tribune in the early 90s. This was an exciting time for Chicago music, with bands such as Material Issue, Urge Overkill, and Smashing Pumpkins on the rise. But I saw Steve and Diane's band, Stump the Host, the most. I kept coming back for Steve's singing and songwriting, his positive, funny energy with Diane, who also has a great voice and writes beautiful songs, and their effortless melding of rock, soul, country, and folk influences. Steve and Diane broke up Stump the Host and started a new band together called Dolly Varden, which has been going strong for more than 25 years. The band name isn't meant to evoke a famous country singer, but is a kind of trout found in the Pacific Ocean, as well as a character in Charles Dickens' novel, Barnaby Rudge. So now you know, Dolly Varden's music over their six albums is much better than the name. Steve also has recorded solo albums, including this year's acclaimed At the Bottom of a Canyon in the Branches of a Tree. And albums with Funeral Bonsai Wedding, his jazzier combo that lets him stretch out with a Van Morrison-like fervor. It's goodbye, goodbye, I love you. I cannot say why. Their 2020 release, Last Flight Out, recorded with a string quartet, also is excellent. Steve has taught songwriting and guitar at Chicago's Old Town School of Folk Music, spurring a community of supportive songwriters and musicians around him. In his songwriting class, he comes up with creative prompts, which may have something to do with the music or lyrics, and a week later you come back with a finished song to perform for everyone. I not only took his class and wrote a bunch of songs, but Steve and I also collaborated on the book Take It to the Bridge, Unlocking the Great Songs Inside You. It contains 16 of his most creative songwriting prompts, plus an extended dialogue about songwriting between Steve and me. And that's kind of what you'll get here as well, as I ask Steve about how his songwriting has changed over the years, whether he gives himself songwriting prompts, and how he knows which song is meant for which band or project. We also discuss how he's managed to stay married to and make music with the same person for 31 years, why some songwriters peak early while others keep evolving, and how a Stevie Wonder concert and the Beatles Get Back documentary have provided inspiration. I love talking about songwriting with Steve, and if you love music, I know you'll get a lot out of this. Please enjoy my conversation with Steve Dawson. Steve. Hey. Hey, how are you? I'm okay. 
How good are to you? see you. Good to talk to you again. Uh, you've been rec- you've been writing songs for a long time, and you've also been teaching songwriting. How how is your songwriting different now from years ago? And and were there different sort of moments where you felt like it was changing, or is that something you're not really conscious of? Wow, that's a lot of things. Okay, um, I hit you right from the start. I have been conscious of things changing very much so. Um, at first, when I was like in high school, you know, you just go by sort of instinct or intuition and just kind of try to emulate emulate your heroes. And at that age, stuff just kind of comes pouring out. Um, and there was no conscious choices about anything, really. <laughs> it was just kind of like, oh, ah. Um, so choices became more conscious over time. Um, teaching the classes has opened me up to um, lots of different ways of going about it and and actually realizing in a weird way, realizing that what I do isn't all that special is very helpful. It makes it less precious and more just kind of like something that people should do. And in a a weird way, that's, it's been really helpful. Yeah. Meaning that you're not the only person writing songs, not about the quality of your songs, but the fact that, oh, this is something that really is available to everyone. Right. And that everyone has a process and that there's no right way to do it. That the the end result of getting a song is is the goal and there's lots of ways to get there and, and um yeah, and that it's sort of like a basic human thing to be creative. Um are all of those and, and just that there's a lot of people walking around that are very very gifted and talented at this. Um, and it makes it more of a continuum in a way, or like a collective rather than an individual pursuit, which is, I think, really helpful for me anyway. It seems like you have sort of a collective around you at the, you know, you have a community of people at the Old Town School of Folk Music and just in general, you know, fans of your music. And a lot of them are musicians. And I feel like it's this, it's this pretty big loyal community of music people which is nice it's really nice yeah and there's a lot of sort of um sort of mutual respect and and sort of friendship and just support among like every it's very positive community so everyone's really happy when someone does something well as opposed to being competitive i'm sure there's some competitiveness but the mostly people keep that to themselves. So in your songwriting class, which of course I've taken and which inspired the book that you and I wrote together, Take It to the Bridge, Unlocking yeah. the Great Songs Inside You, <laughs> uh, available uh, for uh, holiday purchases still, um, you give prompts, you give assignments. Uh, some of them will have to do with lyrics, some with sort of music uh you know theory like you know write something in a circle of fifths or using these types of chord changes sometimes it'll be about digging into a memory or something like that do you when you're sitting down or not sitting down to write a song do you give yourself prompts or is it just a matter of whatever comes out comes out 
I don't give myself prompts, no. Um, so it's, yeah, whatever comes out, comes out. Uh, sometimes I have a concept of a song that is the triggering aspect. Sometimes it's a line. Sometimes it's just improvising music. I know you and I both watched the Get Back thing, the Beatles thing. Yep. And the, the moment where Paul McCartney's sitting there noodling around and singing things and then the, the song Get Back emerges is like the best the best illustration of how that happens that I've ever seen. It's so useful. Right. And I've I've been sharing it in all the classes and I know most most people that write songs have done a similar thing. And you know, it's not like we've <laughs> come up with get back, but we come up with songs through that very process where you just noodle around, sing some gibberish, and then see what happens, you know? And for him, he got the melody of Get Back. And I'm sure that was probably the main process for for him to write songs to all these songs that we know. And probably for most people, that's the way that they they generate songs. Sometimes it starts with a line, like you've got a, line, a lyric or a, a concept a lyric concept that can get you going as well. Are most of your songs written because you're sitting there with your guitar or, you know, another instrument, but usually guitar and noodling around and something comes out sort of musically, or are you more likely to have an idea for a song and then say, okay, I have this title and I'm going to try to write this song around it. More like the former where I'm just sort of fishing around and seeing, seeing what happens through a music, through music. Through usually usually a, a mood that's created by a guitar, some guitar part. Although some of the songs I've written are, you know, I've try, I'll try anything to get a song to come out. So I have had, I have had lyric prompts. The song "Last Flight Out" from that rec, the record two records ago. That was a lyric prompt. I was in a little email group of people, and that that phrase was was the prompt for that week. So. You know, I'll take it anywhere I can <laughs> can get it. So lyric prompts, um, concept prompts. The Ezra Pound song, which is this you know long epic thing. I sort of pictured that song um, live. I, I imagined it being played by that group of musicians, and the feeling of it and the energy of it before I ever began writing it. I just, I thought I wanted this big epic song with a lot of energy in six, eight. <laughs> hmm. So, so did the music come first and then the lyrics or are you still sort of making them up at the same time? Making them up at the same time. So at the beginning, I was asking about how your songwriting has changed. Is this method something you've done consistently? Mm. I mean, so I mean, just to just to back us up. I mean, I first saw you in what, like '89 or yeah, probably probably '89 with uh, this band, Stump the Host, which is you and your wife Diane Christensen and yeah. other musicians. And eventually, that band broke up, and you started Dolly Varden with Diane and different musicians. But so I've been so I've been listening to your music for a long time, and and obviously a big fan and, and loving it um how do you approach how are you writing this stuff differently now oh yeah so at first a lot of those songs in stump the host were written to get the di different people in the band to like me 
<laughs> so I'd write a song like, oh, I, I think this is a song Brian Dunn would really love. Or this is a song that Dave, the bass player, would love. Or this is, this is a song that Diane would think is funny. Something like that. So I was actively thinking about how the songs would be received by the members of the band. Like one would be more country because, you know, someone was more country and one would have that more guitar part or... Yeah, more like, you know, when you're in a band with people, you, they talk about the music they like. So Brian would talk about the birds or he'd talk about Neil Young and Crazy Horse or, you know, Dave would talk about The Clash or um, The Ramones. Diane likes, at that time, she still does, but she likes like witty songs. Um, so I just, you know, I was just like, like oh, this is... This is the more has more of a punk rock energy. This has more of a birdsy energy. This has witty lyrics, that kind of stuff. Did it did it work? Like did did those people actually like those songs, or were were they like, oh, this sounds nothing like what you think it sounds like? No, I think it worked. <laughs> it worked. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna rewind you even further. Tell me about the first song or songs you ever wrote and how that happened. Well, the similarly. In guitar class in seventh grade, we were learning uh, John Denver songs to play, just, you know, three chords and strumming. And one of the very first songs we learned was um, Leaving on a Jet Plane. And I had a friend named Curtis, I don't remember his last name, and he and I were in guitar class together, and I wrote a joke song joke lyrics to leave it on a jet plane about stink having stinky feet and <laughs> and he he and i just thought it was so so funny and we were just like we would just die laughing sing singing this song so in a way i mean i was writing that to entertain my friend and myself um and at first then songwriting was a way to be funny. And then it became more of a personal pursuit. Probably once I I started listening to like at that point I my musical references were pretty slim. I mean, I loved the Beatles growing up, but I didn't I wasn't really aware of any anything other than the the radio. And in Idaho, the radio was non-existent. So once I started playing guitar, people started giving me songbooks. So I would, I got a, like a Neil Young Harvest songbook, a James Taylor Greatest Hits, a Simon and Garfunkel Greatest Hits. And I think by learning those songs, I started taking songwriting maybe a little more seriously, like that it wasn't, it wasn't just jokes. It was uh, real things, songs were about real things. So... I started trying to do that and trying to emulate Neil Young or Paul Simon or James Taylor. And that, those I was doing for myself. I wasn't sharing those songs with anybody. I was just writing them because I was driven to do it. I was going to ask oh. what was the first time that you, you actually said, okay, I'm going to, you actually played these for other people and wanted a response from them. That's a good question. I don't exactly remember. I, um, it might have been my dad, but I don't think he would have paid attention 
on a level that I would have wanted. He would have been just like, oh, that sounds nice. But it must have been for some friends at some point. I must have shared things. Or I remember they had the band, like the the school band, you know, the school orchestra and choir would have these um, end of semester concerts. And I sort of begged on to go out and play a song between, like while they were, you know, between when the band and the choir were setting up. I said, yeah, you know, I could sing a, sing a song and, and kill a little time. <laughs> and that might have been the first that I ever played a song of my own for an audience. And I just remember being petrified but driven to do it. Um, so it's weird. It's weird. I don't know. It's a weird thing. Um, and I was making recordings, but I also wasn't sharing those with anybody. I would record them into a boombox or to a couple of boomboxes and do like really crude uh, overdubbing back and forth between two boomboxes. To... But I was doing it not to share, to do it for myself, but with the dream of someday sharing it, I guess. Was your dream at that point more sort of artistic, like I want to get this vision out, or was it like your sort of typical teenage, like I want to be a famous rock star and get the girls, and so I'm going to do that? I think it was more ex like expression. I wanted to be seen as a as an artist and as a musician. It wasn't. I mean, I heard there's a quote that said that where Graham Nash said something like. Everybody who becomes a, a guitarist or a singer is doing it to get girls, and if they if they say they're not, they're lying. And I I don't think that's true because <laughs> I didn't do it. I didn't do it to get to get the ladies, and if I had, it didn't work because it's <laughs> it's not. I you know well maybe because it's what the what what I do, but it's not something that ever that's not something that ever got me the attention of of the ladies <laughs> well and then and then throughout your professional career you've been married to your musical collaborator for what 30 <laughs> 31 years 31 years <laughs> that's how it sort of takes that off the table anyway yeah yeah um how do how do you make i mean i was going to ask that later but how do you make that work like how do you uh sort of stay harmonious on stage and in life uh, with someone for that long? I just think we have a a rare bond that's pretty deep that's based on some really, really basic um, values that we share. And, this, and we also think each other are pretty funny. So there's humor and there's friendship and there's a lot of independence so you know she her first love is painting we're talking about diane christensen painting and making right. art making visual art and the music thing she's very talented as a musician and if she wanted to focus all her energy on being a musician she she would be outstanding and probably get a lot of notoriety for that but that's not her She's not driven to do that. 
she's driven to do music because she loves to sing and she loves to sing harmony and sing with me. There was a little period where she was taking it more seriously around the time of the Dumbest Magnets, which was 2000, 2001. And she wrote probably her best songs around that time, too. Um, that Forgiven Now record, which came out in 2002, her songs, I think, on that record are better than mine. So she was really pushing herself and focusing on music more than... Um, and maybe there was more competition there, although I always felt really supportive and encouraging of her to do that. And I felt like she always felt that way of me. Like, so we didn't, there wasn't a competition within that. The logistics part of it was tough, but Diane also is someone who just, she'll make a plan and then figure out how to make it work, which is, I think, a rare thing. So she's like, okay, let's go on tour. And I was like, but what about uh, the fact that we have a, you know, have a child. <laughs> She's like, oh, right. Okay, well, let's figure it out. Rather than saying, like, from the get-go, like, I would be like, oh, I can't go on tour. We gotta, I gotta keep my job and I gotta raise our, our child. I can't, I can't be going on tour. So her attitude is like, we will do all these things and we'll just figure out how to make it work. And that's how she lives her life. And it's, so far she's made it work. So I don't know. You guys have very complimentary skills and energy. I think so. Yeah. Well, you, and, you and Mary have similarly have been married for a really long time and seem to be complimentary of each other. The, the key thing that you said is uh, that if you could keep making each other laugh, that's really important. Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, that's my favorite refrain is I still make you laugh. So, yeah. yeah, and the two of you on stage, I mean, I remember from Stump the Host on, it's just like you you guys always had such great energy and it was just very fun and funny to see you guys interacting. And and I think that that just adds this really nice vibe and energy to your your shows. And then, and I, I think I said this too once, maybe to, to Diane, I said, oh, and the way you guys look at each other when you're singing, you know, it's so sweet. And Diane's like, no, I need to look at it, see where his mouth is so I can harmonize, right? It has nothing to do with admiring the guy. It's just, I just, I just need to do it from sort of from a technical point of view. I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to imagine that you guys are looking adoringly at each other as you're singing, but yeah, you know, this is why, yeah, it's best to keep it a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> So you have Dolly Varden for, what, 26 years, something like that? It's been a while. It was a fishy beginning. Stump the Host ended in 93, very consciously ended. I, we were playing a show at the Beat Kitchen, and I just said to everybody, I, I don't want to do this anymore. So we very consciously agreed to have one final show that was kind of a retrospective show, and um, then the period after that was a little fishy. We auditioned drummers. We had Lisa Wortman playing bass, and she was great. But it wasn't really the right fit. And we were trying music. It was the, you know, the Smashing Pumpkins era of Chicago. And we wanted... We had been in this band that had gotten... 
nearly gotten signed by major labels and we kind of had that bug like oh we could get signed you know we could be a band on a major label and so we started trying to make music that would potentially get us attention and i've learned that anytime you do something like that it's anything i should say anytime i try to do something like that it makes just for terrible, terrible music. Um, so we were making grungy, angsty music that I just hated. Um, so that went on for about a year. And then I was just, I, th I think one winter I i set up in the basement with a, a, record, a four-track recorder and I just started demoing songs that were more plaintive and more acoustic based and thinking, I'm just going to do this because I, I hate this music we're making. Um, and that turned into what I consider the beginning of Dolly Varden, which those demos became the Mouthful of Lies record. And that was 1995. Right. So I mark it as the beginning of the band, even though we were playing shows as Dolly Varden in 94, but it, so, yeah, I remember you were a little more power poppy at the beginning or something. It was definitely more yeah. aggressive and like, here's a different. And then eventually it's like, ah, oh, you're just doing Steve Dawson songs in a slightly different setting. Yeah. Um, and uh, what was it, by the way, what was not to, not to be all backwards about this, but what was the thing at Beat Kitchen where you thought this is it for, Do for Stump the Host? I can't do this anymore. Our original drummer, Leslie Santos, um, well, let me go back further than that, even. So this is where the meddling of the record companies wrecked the band, I think. Because um, Stump the Host was this weird, organic combination of, of people that otherwise would not even know each other. Like, I remember Brian Dunn one time saying, it, he had a revelation where, like, you don't have to be friends with the people you're in a band with. <laughs> He's your guitarist in that band. Yeah. I mean, so the we got a we were about to be signed by this label called Zoo Records, which was a subsidiary of RCA. And we were doing we did a demo deal which they spent more money on a weekend of recording at CRC than we would have spent making an entire record. They flew in a producer and an engineer and, um, you know, spent, it's like pre premier studio to make some really crappy recordings. Um, and I think, you know, they spent over $10,000 and we could have spent, we could have made a whole record on, for that amount of money but what they came away with was saying i don't think your drummer is up to up to snuff here and what we would do if we made a record is we'd bring in a we'd bring in a ringer to play on the record and then leslie could be the drummer live and i was like oh fuck <laughs> <laughs> i was like but He's great. I love the way he plays. And and there was a a vibe and a feeling 
that was very important to the way that band exploded and with energy when he went to the ride symbol the whole thing lifted and i think his time was fine but it was because they were focused on as they you know they're a business they were focused on getting on the radio and music at that time so this is early 90s the drums were very uh if you listen to like the wallflowers first record every drum beat is exactly identical it's like you know it's like that's probably sequenced or 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 gridded out in pro tools or something i don't know but it, so Leslie's playing wasn't a commercial sound at the time, but I was just like, oh no. So this is so well, you know, I took that back to the band. Leslie also at the time was having um, this freakish skin disease called scleroderma, and he was having to do treatments and change his diet, and he just said, you know what, I'm just going to quit. Because I can't, I don't want to, it was, and it was awful. It was awful. And we felt terrible. And I remember, you know, praying for him and all this stuff, trying to like, I don't know. But we got a drummer, this guy, Dan Massey, who was great, but it never felt the same again. It, it just, it just killed, to me, it killed the band. Leslie had this really great sense of groove and being in the pocket and, yeah. and your stuff had this sort of kind of soul underpinning, like sort of like Memphis or something like stacks or something like that. Cause he just yeah. really had the feel and what he didn't do was hit the drums hard. And I bet yeah. that's what they were referring to because, you know, like Nirvana, Dave Grohl hit the drums right. really hard and Jimmy Chamberlain hit the drums really hard. And those are right. skilled drummers too, but right. it's a different kind of music. And, and, right. and you know, Leslie, it was not, you would not go into a club and see stump the host and have the drums pinning you against the back wall. The drums would draw you into toward the band, not blast yeah. you out yeah. of the club. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it was, it was a feel thing. So, yeah, I think that is what killed the band. We went for a little while long. We went for another, I don't know, almost a year trying to make it work with Dan. And Dan's a great guy and a great drummer. It just, it was a chemistry thing. It just never felt the same to me. And then we started getting into, like, once that domino fell, then there was like, oh, maybe we need a better bass player. And then once we started going down that road, I was like, I want out. I don't, this is not, it's not the same anymore. Now we're making decisions based on what a record company wants, not on this sort of organic joy of being in a band and making music. And yeah. It seems like over at, at various times in your career, you've had to wrestle with the sort of pure if, if there's any sense of pure what you want to do with expectations of how to sort of take it to the next level so like the dumbest magnets was the third dolly varden album and is really excellent record and and then forever 
I was gonna say forever now. That's that's or like forgiven now. Forgiven now. I was gonna say yeah. I know that's not <laughs> right. Sorry. Yeah. Then you made the then you made the fourth psychedelic furs album. Um, yeah. The forgiven <laughs> now, uh, which you recorded in Nashville. There was there was more. That, that seems like another one where there was more expectation on the band, and maybe more outside stuff came in. Well, what versus it was where is... you were on the third album or the fifth. Thomas Magnets was such a big leap for us. It was the first time we worked with an outside producer. We went to Nashville and worked with Brad Jones, and we had no expectations. And Brad, Brad's suggestions and little, just little adjustments to the songs, we were just, every one of them, we were like, oh my God, that's such a great idea. Like our minds were blown with how fantastic that was. Um, so, and that record exceeded expectations on how it was received. So, it wasn't so much an outside pressure as internal pressure with the band. We thought, ah, well, let's top that. And we went back to Brad, and I think Brad's ego was involved now because he thought, ah, well, let's, we did very well with Dumbest Magnets, let's really push push ourselves this time. And so he did a lot more tinkering with the songs and he was more aggressive about his suggestions rather than just like, what about this chord? Or what if we extended this? Or what if we did this chord for an ending? He was actually restructuring the songs more. Um, one of the songs he took it from, it was kind of like a quiet soul like a gentle soul song and he made it more of a kind of stonesy rock song and uh so it, i think it was too much tinkering and too much expectation but it wasn't it wasn't from like a record company it was from from the band and the producer like we mm -hmm. all thought we maybe we got big headed i don't i don't know if we got big headed I think we got hopeful, more optimistic, maybe like, oh, we're doing well. Let's keep let's do even more, even better, which is I think that's a that's a natural human thing. So. So when you had Last Flight Out, which was your album with Funeral Bonsai Wedding. So so people listening, obviously, there are, there are various bands and incarnations that Steve Dawson does his music. Uh, he had he had Stump the Host. He's had Dolly Varden for many years. Uh, he has Funeral Bonsai Wedding, which is more of a kind of jazzy, stretching out kind of outfit and sometimes plays with a string quartet with them as well, aside from like this vibes and, you know, these sort of jazz players. And then there are solo albums you've done where you record most of the instruments yourself uh but you've also then done some where it's sort of you and funeral bonsai wedding or it's just a funeral bonsai wedding but anyway so you had last flight out which was the funeral bonsai wedding album that came out in 2020 and then you have uh at the bottom of a canyon in the branches of a tree which pravda records chicago's own put out this year and both of these albums have gotten fantastic responses. And like I was reading one of my, I think it was Uncut, you know, my my British music magazines, and there was a four star review of of, you know, at the bottom of a canyon, mm -hmm. um, which I assume you've seen. Oh, yeah. uh, so it was great. So so are you feeling any of those pressures now? Because like you're on you're on the rise again. You know, do you do you need to top these in some way, or, or are you now kind of, you know, you know, 
it's none of that matters. It's just what you want to do. And you don't worry about these external expectations anymore. Well, yeah, I'm now 20 years older than I was when those records came out, when Forgiven Now came out and a lot of, you know, I've had a lot of experiences and, uh, you know, just, I think being older, I am able to be just, um, to feel gratitude and uh, satisfaction with the fact that those records did well, but I don't have that sort of like youthful drive to like prove myself or to do better. (laughs) And in fact, I don't know what I'm going to do now because I feel like both those records did better than I expected and that was a lot of songs. That was a lot of stockpiling of songs. And I don't really, I mean, I have at the bottom of the Canyon was originally going to be a double album, which, you know, cause I, I asked for your help in sequencing. <laughs> so I had a whole double album plotted and, um, that it, it ended up being released as a single elbow LP just because that's a much smarter choice. <laughs> um, so I do have, another album's worth of songs that are mostly recorded and finished. So I might end up putting those out um, at some point. Um, But I don't really feel, yeah, I don't, I don't have a plan for what the next thing is. And I don't really feel the need. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure at some point I'll do something, but I don't, I don't feel an overwhelming drive to, to better it or to do anything. I would like to try something new. I just don't know what that is. Well, and over that 20 years, the the way people consume, and I hate the word consume, yeah. uh, listen to yeah. music has changed a few times and that there was a yeah. while where everyone was streaming everything and albums didn't really exist as albums or if they did they you know people sort of would you know pick and choose what songs they wanted to listen to on spotify or itunes right. or whatever uh you know that said you know vinyl now is back and i think there's more of a commitment again to the idea of albums which makes me happy so i have the vinyl of both of these albums and listen to them in that form with side one and side two and yeah it's fantastic. So you can you can sort of think in those terms again and also think about actually selling copies of those when it was really impossible to sell copies of anything a while ago, like whether that's enough to support you as an artist, musician, maybe another issue. But at least there's sort of that that sense of the album as art form, which is what you grew up listening to. Oh, is yeah. Now. Yeah, no, to me, that's the way... That's like the ultimate version of of the ultimate way to experience music is 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 in an an album with two sides where you have you get that twenty to twenty five minute pause between sides. I just think it's it's the perfect the perfect song listening experience. Well, I, I really enjoyed the 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 what turned into a thought exercise about. You know, your, when we had your double album that turned into the single album, yeah. like how do you sequence a double album? Because it's different from, yeah. you know, the single album. You still think if you're really old fashioned, you think of sort of your four corners, like, well, all right, what's your first and last song on each side? Yeah. But then there's the, you know, you got eight, eight, you know, first and last songs on a double album. And, you know, do you ease into it like, you know, George Harrison on All Things Must Pass with I'd Have You Any Time? Or do you just jump out of the gates like, you know, back in the USSR and, 
you know, and then if your if your songs are more kind of mid tempo and slower songs, how do you you just sort of sustain a mood for a while and then have one side that has your funkier stuff? So it's it's interesting to think. Oh, in, in, in terms yeah, of that. no, and and in researching it, like going through classic double albums, the the variety was of the ways that people approached that problem was fascinating and not something I'd even like I I hadn't paid that much attention to like the sequencing of songs in the key of life. I was going to mention that one too cuz we saw that show together. We were at the yeah. United Center and it was so fantastic, but that album just so slowly kind of grooves into what it's doing and and you know, then by the end of side 1 all of a sudden you're getting, you know, yeah, I wish yeah. and Sir Duke and the beginning side too. Um when you're writing songs now given that you have all these different outlets do you think, oh, here's a Funeral Banzai song, here's a Dolly Varden song, and here's a solo song. Um, I know that there's some that sort of take different forms, like uh, 22 Rubber Bands. I saw you play with Dolly Varden, and I think you recorded it with Dolly Varden, and it ended up on uh, At the Bottom of a Canyon as a right. solo song. Yeah, that song had been kicking around for a while. That's one where this is something I've done, which I don't know that that many people do, but I... I think for me, music, coming up with music is a lot easier than coming up with words. So that song, when it showed up, it showed up as a more of a rock, a rock and roll rave up song. And uh, we tried it with Dolly Varden and it just, it, it felt good, but not great. And I was like, I don't know. I like the, I like it, but I don't love it. And so when I was making the solo record, I tried it. I literally tried. I tried to make it like a Ann Peebles song. <laughs> hmm. I tried to make it like a David Bowie song, like a little scratchy, kind of sideways pop rock. And then at some point, I think in one of my classes, I was playing a song by The Cure. Um, and I thought, ah, I think that might be the approach. This kind of dream pop, synthy, dream pop thing with a guitar melody. So you, that's what you think it sounds like? Yeah. So that's always fascinating to me. Like, we, like <laughs> you're some band and you'll be like, you know, they're like, oh yeah, that's my, uh, that's, you know, like Elvis Costello, like, oh, you'll, you'll never be a man as my pretender song. And I'm like, really? Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I don't, I don't think of that as like a cure song at all. I do think of it as kind of a soulful, like kind of the M people's thing, except you don't have that, you know, like heavy you know, yeah. backbeat on it, but yeah. it, but it does have a kind of sweet soul flavor to me. Well, that's true. I mean, I think Elvis Costello at one point said uh, a lot of the sort of middle period stuff they were doing they would they were actively copying grooves from records right um that trust but, album in particular i think but like that fish and cheap paper was their squeeze that song you know right but that nobody would know because they don't they don't know the context so they're just thinking it's elvis costello but yeah or that if they grab a if they grab a bass line and a groove from a motown song people aren't going to think it sounds like motown because it's Elvis Costello singing and it's their more like, you know, more aggressive drive. So, so, so 22 rubber bands went through different incarnations. You have songs on last flight, uh, 
out that were on your solo album earlier, like Mastodons. Yeah. Uh, and the monkey mind is on the prowl. Do you, do you, do you like kind of coming back to your songs and thinking, how do I recast this? Yeah, I do. That, that ended up because I did this, um, I did this series of shows at the hideout in 2017. Well, one of them was our book show. The, yeah, that was great. The Take It to the Bridge, All Bridge show, The Bridge Tacular. When, when, when everyone did their songs with great bridges and they chose them, and that was fantastic. That was a really fun show. So it was one of those. Uh, one of them was Funeral Bonsai Wedding with a String Quartet, which, is a, which was a dream I had. I'd, you know, I'd been playing with Funeral Bonsai Wedding, and we'd made the record in 2014, and I'd been a fan of and friends with Melissa from uh, Quartet Paraplui, Melissa Bach, and um, I'd seen her play with Jenny Benjamin and with Edward Birch, and uh, I'd approached her, I said, you know, would you ever consider doing a show where you do strings to my song, and she's like, oh, yeah, that'd be great. So the obstacle was who would do the string arrangements. So. I just I just was talking to Jason Rebke, the bass player in Funeral Bonsai Wedding, about the idea, and he's like, I, I can do the arrangements. And I was like, oh, really? I didn't know you had that skill. But he's like, yeah. And boy, um, he knocked it out of the park. I mean, I, we, it was just going to be a one-off gig, like just to do it that one time. It wasn't meant to be a recording project. But every person was like, we got to record this. Like, all the people in the string quartet, Jason Adeshevitz, the vibraphonist in Funeral Bonsai Wedding, Diane, everyone's just like, this is too good to have it just be one gig. Um, so, I didn't have enough, you know, I didn't have enough songs. that We did three new songs at that show, and three existing songs and they're pretty long and that's that's the amount of songs he did arrangements for <laughs> and so i was just like that's gonna be the record there you go so it, yeah and totally Rather works than, yeah i think so i mean they work together the the one song called it's not what you think is um one that Ages ago, ages ago, before Funeral Bonsai Wedding, I was just doing duet shows with Jason Rebke, with him on upright bass, and he said that uh, that song would be great with orchestration. So that was something that stuck in the back of my mind. And that's, you know, so... And then however long it takes is when you you've then re-recorded for uh, At the Bottom of a Canyon, but then that's one of the ones that was left off of the single album version. But a fantastic song. That That's one that I remember you playing when we were doing bookstore appearances, okay. and I think you'd just written that one. Yeah. And maybe even played it at the one we did at the bookseller the night of the inauguration. Oh yeah. Um, but I remember you, yeah. but I remember you playing that song and me being really struck by it. And again, that's a song that you're just singing in a bookstore on an acoustic guitar. Um, and then I'm hearing with funeral bonsai wedding and strings on that yeah. album. And then this right. different approach again on the solo record. Yeah. That song, you know, and, and coming back to Stevie wonder too, um, 
I don't know if you recall, but at that show, Stevie Wonder said, any songwriters out there, it's time for you to write more love songs and not getting it on songs, but love songs. I do remember that. And uh, I said, okay, that's my assignment. And that was the song I wrote in response to him beckoning people to write songs about more like societal love or love for your, for the, you know, common man or common human. And so that's, that's where that came from. At the bottom of a canyon, you have uh, forgiveness is nothing like I thought it would be. You also have, I will never stop being sorry, which includes the lyric forgiveness is a holy place when there. So that's sort of a theme that's recurring right now. Is that something that's just I mean, this is sort of obvious, but is that something that's just kind of in your mind? Is it sort of a coincidence that these two songs are on this album? Or is this just kind of like something you're going through and this is reflective of, you know, you know, it's 2021 and this is where I am right now. Oh, no, it's that's much more personal of, of stuff that's been going on mostly with my within my family for many, many years and just arriving at a point of acceptance and for yeah, trying to forgive, trying to learn to forgive rather than being angry. So yeah, the the sorry song just came out at the at the Richard Thompson songwriting camp because uh, Patty Griffin, that was another assignment. I need to get more assignments. She her assignment was two things. Listen to Screaming Jay Hawkins version of I Put a Spell on You. Which one. is fantastic. And two, write the song you're afraid to write. So I just started playing, you know, that the bass line from I Put a Spell on You and just singing. And that's the song that popped out. So it's her fault. Huh. And what was it? What was about that that made it the song you were afraid to write? I guess guilt and shame. That's not something anybody wants to express. <laughs> and yet there it is. Are these songs that you could have written 20 years ago? Or is, the, is this stuff that you have to be writing right now? Yeah, I couldn't have. This, they're songs that I've arrived at. I mean, I think if I look, but like we did a show this in September with Dolly Varden outdoors at... Uh, the Canal Shores. Shores. Yeah. And Dolly Varden doesn't play all that often anymore. We play maybe once a year. And in putting together the set list, a lot of those songs are very old. Like some of those songs, we played songs off of the first couple of records, and that's the 90s, which is a long time ago now. Um, and well, I think the songs are good-ish, they're to me they feel very young and they feel very unfocused and um yeah i feel like i've just i have a lot more clarity now is 
there's like this one sort of subset, which is a pretty large subset of musicians and songwriters who really knock off all of their best work when they're really young. And then, you know, they keep sort of coming back, but the melodies don't really stick and the lyrics are, you know, okay. And, and, and they're just sort of like, okay, they peaked and now they're doing like decent, you know, they're sort of keeping it going. And then there are other people who sort of keep growing and growing and growing. Um, I would put, you know, you in that latter category. I would put someone like Richard Thompson in that latter category, which isn't to say what he's doing now is better than what he was doing in the 70s, but but there's sort of a consistent level of work and exploration where you don't feel like it's ever kind of fallen back on stuff. Yeah. He just keeps moving forward. Like, what's the distinction between, you know, like, like how is it, at least for you, where you're able to sort of you know, do some of the most acclaimed, if you know, if that matters, but, you know, acclaimed music of your career now at your age, as opposed to, um, you know, having sort of peaked when you were 25 or something. Well, I mean, it's, it's good for me because it keeps me going. I think if I felt like I was just retreading, it wouldn't feel good. But, you know, it's like, the people that peak in their 20s, which is, you know, watching the Beatles thing again, it's like, good Lord. Like, Paul McCartney was 26 there? It's like, yeah. holy crap. I mean, when he started playing Backseat in My Car, I was like, oh. <laughs> I mean, for God's sakes. He had that song? He had, like, he, he had this... Yeah, he sits down at the piano and he's like, let it be, long and winding road, uh, another day. Another day. Um, and uh, carry that weight and uh, golden slumbers and carry that weight. And then a little later, he starts doing Black in my, Back in My Car, Backseat of My Car. Which I love that song. It's kind of a throwaway on Ram, but it's a great song. I love that song. Good Lord. So can you imagine how that felt? Yeah, Paul McCartney is such a weird phenomenon, isn't he? He's always been weirder than he gets credit for. I think that consistently he's done so much strange stuff, but the commercial stuff is so yeah. catchy that everyone thinks he's totally down the middle. But like, I think, you know, some, someone like Elton John, I think was more down the middle as he got older, but yeah. McCartney still just kind of veers all over the place. And some of it's great. I think that his melodic sense now is not what it used to be, but how could it be? You know, he's, he's written so many songs. Um, but it's, but, you weird, know, the, the weird thing that songs. I was thinking is for him, to be inside that existence, he seems kind of like aloof about it, which I, you know, I don't know how else he could be, but he's just such a, you know, kind of, <laughs> that happened. He doesn't seem to be able to contextualize. I don't know. It's just weird. Whereas I think a lot, I don't know. I There was an interview with Bob Dylan talking about his incredible output when he was in his 20s, too. And he's like, I have no idea how I did that. I have no idea how those songs showed up, how I wrote those songs, which I think is more honest. <laughs> right. Or something. He's someone who keeps evolving, too. I mean, he doesn't He keeps really trying. Stop. You know, he's pushing himself. So did Paul Simon until I think Paul Simon's now lost his voice or something, but he's not doing anymore. But he kept his career. He kept pushing himself and trying things. And I respect that. I mean, I mean Neil Young, he's old and he keeps making records. He keeps making the same records, but he does keep making records and 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 you know, not resting he, on 
cinnamon yeah, or something. He's got his categories. So he'll do his yeah. crazy horse record and he'll do yeah. his kind of folky record and he'll do his country-ish, you know, and, yeah. and whatever out of other oddball stuff he does. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because McCartney, when he plays live, will play the exact same arrangements of everything. And it kind of drives me crazy. The, the one that drives me most crazy with McCartney is that they'll do the long and winding road and he'll have Wicks, his keyboard player on the synth, do the synth parts that he hates. Really? Phil Spector put on long and winding road. And I'm like, why don't you just do the, you know, let it be naked that you huh. version that you prefer. And, and there's, and there's a sense of Paul being, you know, the Mozart of his generation or of his century, still feeling the need to sort of cater to people's expectations. Whereas, you know, Dylan will be like, and you'll be like, oh, that was just like a woman. You know, I just have no idea what that was. (laughs) He doesn't care. You know, he doesn't doesn't care. care. And Paul cares so deeply. And I think this whole get back thing, which was really just such an amazing treasure trove of stuff for us, Beatles fans or just any musicians to watch. I'm sure that it just drove Paul crazy that Michael Lindsay Hogg, who you see in this in Get Back, being truly annoying, you know, and talking about, well, let's do it in a let's do it in <laughs> a hospital where the people aren't so sick or an orphanage. <laughs> Which, and then he just like this, this, yeah, and you know, and he's and the, but then Let It Be came out, and uh, you know, I've seen Let It Be a lot of times, and it is you know sort of a dour you know movie. But I'm sure Paul saw the cut of Let It Be, and he's like, wait, you're going to show me, you know, arguing with George twice, but you're not going to show me making up Get Back? <laughs> like, like how does how does that clip not make it into anyone's cut of any movie that he Let It Be? He didn't even remember it, though. I mean, the thing is, it's... Uh, but Michael Lindsay Hogg should have been like, okay, that's... I'm going right, to put that in. Right, that's magic. I mean, that's a magic... That's a magic few minutes that is like a rare... God, I would love to see, you know, Joni Mitchell coming up with with uh, both sides now, or so. You know, like these classic songs. Or can you imagine that scene of Brian Wilson coming up with "God Only Knows"? Something like that. It's just like, oh my God, I know. Like these magical moments, and it's so funny that like I've watched it now a few times because I've shared it with the songwriting classes too. And uh, George at first is trying to keep track with the chords and then it, eventually he just gives up and starts yawning. <laughs> <laughs> so what that shows is like, that was not an unusual thing to happen. That they, they in the presence of Paul McCartney making up a song, it was not an unusual circumstance, which is fascinating too. Yeah, no, they're sitting in the four of them learning songs and Yoko's sitting right there attached to John reading the newspaper. That kind of freedom and confidence with creativity is really informative. I mean, I I couldn't make up a song with a camera crew and my bandmates and like a Harry Krishna guy, you know, across the room. And there's no way I could be free enough to make a song up while all that's going on. I wonder whether this is something that they just didn't do or whether it's something that wasn't captured by the cameras, but that you never see them comment on the quality of any of the songs, right? Mm -hmm. There's no sort of editing, um, you know, where, where, you know, you know, it could be sort of negative where it's like, you know, I mean, John could play dig a pony and Paul would be like, well, not your best, but you know, or something like that. You know, I mean, I mean, clearly like they're not that enamored of all things must pass, which is to their detriment. But on the other hand, you know, George is coming up with something and, 
you know, I say this in my Carol Pop blog, I wrote about it. Like at no point does anyone say, you know, George, that's like a totally timeless melody. I think that's going to be like one of the, it's going to be the most gorgeous song you ever write. It'll be the, the lasting, you know, loves one of the lasting love songs of the 20th century. It's just kind of like, well, I think you should do this with the lyrics, yeah. you know, it's, they call it there's, but there's, but there, yeah, exactly. Pomegranate, <laughs> but there's no, there's no sense of, oh, that's a good one, you know? there's just none of that they're just sort of like they just sort of okay oh, okay yeah paul's paul's playing making up let it be in the background that's like that sounds like paul song. <laughs> well part of it is that they're british and part of it's that they're 20 year old men so i don't think there probably was maybe n- never like if you know john lennon comes in with day in the life and they're like oh okay <laughs> i'll just do this you know they're so jaded and they're like in their mid twenties, you know, it's they're just crazy. like, they're, they're like 26, you know, Paul, George is 25. It's like 26, 27, 28, and 29, I think, or even, or just 28, 28. And, um, yeah, the creation. Yeah. I, and, and, uh, cause it's just the beginning of 69. So, so I don't know if like maybe, you know, early on they would have been like, Oh, Norwegian wood. That's amazing. But you know, now they're like, ah, oh, whatever, something, let it be. Um, so I don't know, or, or or maybe their process was just, they just sort of did it and kept going yeah. and didn't sort of stop to reflect on what it means or how good it is, because maybe that would have made them more self-conscious. Well, and one of the charms of them, I think, was that they didn't seem to be affected by all the fame and notoriety. They just seemed to be like themselves all the time. I think that was a real appeal to their popularity, right? They could, they were kind of like, ugh, I... I could have been a hairdresser, you know, it's like they, they, it didn't seem to go to their heads and that was all part of the package, I think. So did you get any songwriting prompts out of watching that get back? I didn't get any prompts, but I got inspired to try things. The idea that it seems like maybe all of them, maybe not there's not a lot of glimpse into how John Lennon wrote because from the beginning he already had don't let me down right I mean he just comes yeah. in there's no and there weren't that many with him I mean they were doing right. across the universe which had been recorded before they went to India and he had dig a pony later in the sessions like not when they were twicking him and otherwise it it's seems just, like so George like all things must pass he seems like he has a first verse something he's just getting the melody and the idea old brown shoe he has the piano part and some lyrics so it's more like and the bridge he yeah had the so music for the bridge it seemed like he just come up with that too and paul too like his songs were not fully fleshed out like backseat of my car he just has the chorus so the idea that a song doesn't have to be finished for you to consider it something worth working on, or I don't know. There was something more about this sort of pure creativity and keep it keep it flowing rather than... Because what I'll do is, if I get a verse of something and I can't find anything else to go, I'll just get I'll just a, abandon it rather than, rather than sticking with it, which maybe that's instructive to, to stick with it. My my 17-year-old daughter has been writing songs on the piano, and she's very melodic, but it's melodic in a totally different way from anything I would make up. Hmm. Um, you know, and then, I, I don't know, the way I make up songs is very much as someone who grew up listening to the Beatles and 
Costello and REM and, and they're, you know, just kind of these concise verses and these concise choruses, if they have a chorus, um, maybe they have a refrain or something like that. And, and there's just more of sort of a free flowing sense of it. And if you listen to sort of pop music or rock music now, it's, it's like songs just are sort of different and they're sort of structured differently. Yeah. And I'm wondering when you do your songwriting assignments, whether you notice this, it, like whether the songs that people are bringing in have changed because music has sort of changed in these kind of subtle or maybe even not subtle ways or whether it's you know what you're doing is a you know old town school folk music songwriting and people bring in those kinds of songs you know year after year i i will say it skews by age so younger people are bringing in songs that are a little more freeform and people 35 and older are bringing in more structured or aiming for more structured songs tradition i should say traditionally structured songs but yeah it does feel like the person i probably know the best of modern young songwriters is phoebe bridgers and she does both she's capable of writing a very concise verse chorus song and also writing these sort of through written not formless and certainly very melodic, but they aren't traditional song forms. Yeah, it just sounds different. And, and it's hard for me to put my finger on it, but but I'll hear something and, and I'll be like, yeah, this is melodic, but it's not melodic in the same... Because there was a while where it sort of felt like everything is sort of being pushed by the rhythms. And mm. like, I don't think Phoebe Bridgers is, is a, you know, you, you listen to her and you're like, oh, it's all about the rhythms. No, no, there's... It's, but it's, it's just... The, it's like pure emotion. You know who does that um, is Nico Case. Her songs are pretty free, free verse a lot of the times. Like kind of through written. Yeah. With, with refrains and hooks for sure, but not in, often not in a traditional sense. And I think it's been getting more of that way. I think she started off more traditional kind of in the country, alternative country thing and has gotten has pushed herself or changed to be a little more freeform. Would you say your approach in this way has been consistent or are you getting more freeform? I would like to, but I think, you know, same as you, I, I'm so, I'm so born out of those, you know, Beatles, Bob Dylan world that it just feels it feels like I'm betraying something if I don't have a structure. I occasionally like, probably the weird, well, no, that's not even weird. I have long songs. You do. You have more than you used to. Yeah. You've always had some, but. They're longer. But that's probably from loving Astral Weeks and loving, awesome. loving Bob Dylan's long songs more than. Yeah, than anything else. The 10 minute uh, Taylor Swift remake or something. <laughs> you know, I saw her do that on Saturday Night Live and I didn't know that's what was happening. I just thought she was going to sing a song. And as it kept going, I was like, well, this is really long. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh, it's like, oh, this is really long. This is interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that was going to happen. I don't know if the rest of the world knew that was going to happen, but I thought, I was like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know, I didn't know anything about what was happening there? I kind of like the occasional really long song. 
you know, it just it just sort of breaks things up. It's always like, oh, okay, all right, we're gonna really stretch yeah. this thing out. As long as it is not like noodling. Like I'm not a big jammy jam band, you know, the 17 minute version of something where it's just like noodling. But but it's like sort of a structured song that just happens has a lot of verses or just sort of is like, all right, we're just gonna go to it. For me, it's about the trance thing. Like if you you try to get into a hip hypnotic state both as performer and listener hopefully so this the the goal is sort of transcendence through through hip hypnosis <laughs> musical hypnosis which i think is you know a lot of spiritual music is that's the goal i've just been watching the the george harrison documentary that came out i don't know however long ago the living in the, the Scorsese world, one yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of stuff with uh, Ravi Shankar in there, and talking about yeah, that's the the trance, the trance-ness of of the Indian music is. That's one of the goals of it, right? And there's the trance of funk as well. I mean, funk is very sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, and obviously there's all this whole you know EDM and and everything else, but right, uh, right, right. Like I remember years ago hearing the the Can song Hallelujah, which I think is yeah. like 18 minutes long, but it's yeah. it's like the funkiest craziest song and it just keeps going and going and going i'm with it the entire way right, so right so we should we should like write our like 18 minute trance funk epic there you go something like that <laughs> so all right well great well it's really fantastic to talk to you in this format and any other format you you have a solo show coming up at space on december 19th yes and that's you with a your your solo band which diane named the lucid dreams. I do keep in mind that you said at my 50th birthday that you should not, <laughs> don't allow Steve Dawson to name your band. So I've taken that to heart. So I, I was trying Dawson... to decide whether to go there with this. Like, all right, you got Stump the Host. Actually, I like Stump the Host. You know, Stump the Host kind of presaged all the the, the names, like Foster yeah. the People and Cage the Elephant. Uh, you were ahead on that trend. Dolly Varden, I think, you know, people thought it was, you know, a mispronunciation of a country star, but I, I didn't really, you know, it's still a good name, of course. It's a fish. And uh, and Federal Bonsai Wedding is memorable. It's fun. Right? <laughs> I like that name, but I know. I like it too. But People it's... are just like, what? Anyway. So Lucid Dreams, that's pretty good, I think. It is that's good. Like, yeah. They should open for REM. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Could be like the <laughs> the dream state uh double bill lucid dreams is good so so you're going to play there then and are you going to play only songs that you wrote for yourself as opposed to dolly varden songs because this is how you wall things off no there's a few dolly varden songs in there i think yeah well cool well i look forward to seeing and hearing you then and oh, cool Thank you so much for for joining oh, yeah. me on Carol Pop, and we should we'll do this again. We'll we'll like find some other aspects of songwriting just to break down as we do in the book. See see the book that I might as well put a little ad in. You know the book that we did, Take It to the Bridge, Unlocking the Great Songs Inside You. The first two thirds of it is the two of us having a conversation like this. So if you like this, get the book, and then you'll also get all those awesome songwriting prompts from Steve, including uh, the one about Beatles structure. So you yeah. can write a Beatles song after you read the book. Yeah. It's out there. It's out there in the world. It's on Amazon. It's available directly from the publisher. GIA. So, all right, good. Thanks so much, Steve. I'll see yeah. you soon. Say hi to Diane. That's a wrap on episode 10 of Carol Pop. 
Thanks again to Steve Dawson for being so open about songwriting and his artistry. Steve and his solo project band, Lucid Dreams, will be performing December 19th at the Club Space in Evanston. If you're anywhere in the Chicago area, come listen and say hi. Also, Steve's in my book, Take It to the Bridge, Unlocking the Great Songs Inside You, is available online at places one buys books online. You could find the links at tothebridgesongwriting.com. Thanks, as always, to web developer Marty Rosenbaum and to Lou Carlozo, who recorded the Carol Pop theme. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who needs no prompts to make things sound fantastic. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter, at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O, and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, food, and more, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Thanks. Thanks.